The Boise Dev Podcast is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is a free platform for podcasts like this one. It allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can even add in songs from Spotify to help spice up those episodes. Anchor will make sure that your podcast is distributed pretty much everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, and many more. Plus, you can make money from your podcast with an ad like this. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You are listening to the Boise Dev Podcast. Mayor Lauren McLean, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we'll just tell people we had to start over. So I'm going to ask you the same question so you know it's coming. But <laughs> is it weird to be called mayor? It is weird to be called mayor. And I was saying that, especially in these early days, on Wednesday it happened. I, mean, I know it's going to keep happening. I was walking through a crowd and hearing mayor, mayor, mayor. But it didn't register that the person was trying to talk to me until they reached my shoulder. And then I had to pretend that I just hadn't heard them. Um, but it was just this realization that I now have a name to go by that wasn't mine till Tuesday. Crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. So Tuesday was a big night for you. I'm sure you've had a life full of long nights. I feel like I'm repeating myself because I am. <laughs> How did that rank? It, it was really up there. And it flew by. So, you know, so as a council member, I had lots of long nights. Um, I've been blessed to have really special nights and days in my life um, when I got married, when my kids um, joined us on this earth. But this Tuesday was something you can't really ever predict how it's going to feel or even know it's going to happen. And it really sunk in. Yesterday, I watched Channel 6's copy of it just from Madeline's phone and then it really hit me um, what had happened the crowd that was there all these things that I hadn't fully taken in in that moment when I was being sworn in by my friend Judge Dan Steckel packed house right packed, I mean it house. was I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that room full and I've seen it full well, the volume, maybe you have but I've seen it full but not like that but you know I'm short so also I can't see like the extent <laughs> of everything because for once we weren't on the dais I was down on the ground right but the um, volunteer security team said they stopped counting um, just close to 800 because of fire marshal issues. We had overflow rooms available, so we were technically legal. But it was it was a crowd, and I think it stunned everybody in the room that night. Yeah, it surprised me. I mean, your predecessor opened up by saying, fire marshal be damned, right? And, right, yeah. And, and yeah. I, you guys, I guess, had the authority to do that that evening. And it was really cool, actually, to look out and see so many people from so many different walks of sure. life, political persuasions, um, different neighborhoods. It was truly a city event, which was really special to me. I'm really grateful for the people that took the time to join us um, that'll help me hold true to the promises I made Tuesday night. So you have spoken at length about how you came to Boise with your husband in the early 2000s, right? 1998. 98. Okay. And um, how you chose Boise. I'm curious to know why you guys chose Boise and maybe where else you looked. So I say we chose Boise, but so many people will say to me, you know, Boise chose you. Mm. We were so lucky to get a happenstance call with a job interview and to be like, oh, what the heck, let's take a free trip. You know, not what you're supposed to do, but we were kids and (laughs) we wanted to go on an adventure, never thinking that it would be real. We'd planned to move to Seattle. My husband was negotiating with a tech company and I had applied to law schools all over the West and that's where we decided to land. But coming here, 
was again, like I said, I, we, I wasn't taking it seriously, but as we landed, I was actually reading Angle of Repose because I'd worked for a summer in Montana and then went back east and just tried to keep connected to the West in some way. And so I would read Charlie Wilkinson, an attorney and professor at UC, um, Colorado Boulder, and Wallace Stegner and anybody else that I could pick up to re- just to keep me tied to the West and was reading Angle of Repose. I had no idea there was a whole Boise section. And on our second flight, had turned the page, and suddenly I was reading about their arrival in Boise. Of course, I didn't know as I was landing that I was flying over um, the places that that family had settled and the dam that they had helped make true and real. But it was an interesting way to to approach the city. And then as I landed to see the hills and the landscape, just really drew me in. And there was something about this place. I mean, it's that thing that nobody can really name that existed in the 90s before the tech crash. And so the city was tiny, but really vibrant. And Scott and I could sit downtown under blankets in March outside, have a glass of wine. And then during the day, move down to the river up in the hills. It was just astounding to us. And the, the people that received us as well were so incredibly welcoming that just it just it drew me in and the hills drew me in and I wanted to be here enough that I walked away from the life that I thought you know I had planned to have and made a go of it once I got here so you 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 talk about that thing that those of us who were rarely now born here chose to stay and draws people in those things are, I think a lot of people have started to feel under threat and we're growing so fast because people do come in and they see how amazing this place is at an accelerating rate. And you're talking about that a lot. In four years, when it's time to go through this all again, I'm sure you're like, hey buddy, it's four, day four, can we hold off on the four years talk? But what do you think people will say about your first four years in this job? Well, I hope that they will say that I remain true to my promise to merge Old West styles that are so magical about politics and community building in the West with modern needs and that I remained accessible, that they saw me countless times and were able to have a conversation with me and recognize that even though we wouldn't always agree or I didn't necessarily agree with them, that I heard them and, and, and use their information and experience to, to influence the decisions that had to be made and how I made them. I really believe that we have to make progress regionally um, from a relational perspective to tackle transit. So I said throughout the campaign, I'll say today, I want to be able to say to the public, here is our actionable plan. And the leaders in this valley agree that we have to roll up our sleeves together and make it happen. And so that's something that I hope people will say. There are so many issues that every growing city grapples with, but I also believe that we can be a lab city. We can experiment with policy ideas and different solutions that are found from the people that live in this place in the same way that when we settled this valley, you know, people had the crazy idea of building canals and look what happened. And so I also want people to be able to say that they participated in trying some new things that we still have far to go to, to address growth because I imagine we'll continue to grow. 
but that they can pinpoint that, yes, Lauren heard and worked on this affordability piece. Yes, she has built the relationships necessary to um, impact transit in the long run. Look, we are now talking as a community about what it means to protect the place in which we live and to create opportunities for the people to remain connected. All that's really important to me. How do you get there? The the city of Boise and the city of Meridian, as I say a lot, people are probably tired of hearing me say this, they're not two cities anymore in a physical way. They are politically, but it's kind of one invisible border and CUNA and STAR and all these communities are kind of growing into a blob and that's just Ada County. Right. How do you find ways, pathways to build consensus with people who have different political persuasions than you or different ways of looking things that help build solutions that work for people living in Boise or people living in Meridian or Nampa or Caldwell? I'd say the first thing is to love the process of working with and coming to understand people that are so different from you. And that's something that I relish. And so I really do believe it's it's person by person, relationship by relationship that has to be built. There are things we'll never agree on, but I know that at the end of the day, the leaders in Canyon County and Ada County are there for the same reasons. We are there because we want to serve the communities that we love and most importantly, the people that make them up, make make up the community. And so then that's that's the common point from which we start is how do we work together to ensure that the people that we love deeply in these cities that are so important to us or the counties that are important to us can access the opportunities that will make their lives better. Right. And we might believe from a policy perspective that you do that different ways or that government has different roles in life and, and civic community. But we all, I believe, agree that we're here to serve our people. So let's start from there and start to talk about what that means in the long run for this region. So I asked for questions from uh, the Boise Dev Facebook group because I always try and be focused on what the readers want me to talk about, not what I think is important. And there was 140, I think. Um, and Rebecca Arnold weighed in, mm-hmm. as she does actually quite a bit in there. She weighs in on your oh, page. Yeah. Okay. And um, she said that you two had met. Mm-hmm. And she said, and I, I should have written this down, but something to the effect of, uh, we both work for you, meaning the public, and we owe it to you to get along. Can you talk to me about what that meeting was like and what you um, hope to achieve in working with the highway district? Sure. That meeting was really fun. I enjoyed getting to know Rebecca from a personal, on a personal level. And she was in the room Tuesday, right? She was in the room yeah. Tuesday, mm-hmm. right. And we had met before that. And it was funny, we, we were meeting, and I, and I guess from the, from the entrance of the establishment, people could see me, but couldn't see her. And I realized this as people started showing up to eat and came over. And then would turn the corner and see her and the eye, their eyes would just like their bodies and their eyes would just kind of like move open. And um, and the first time it surprised me. And then after that, it just became really funny to see it happen every single time. And but no, I really enjoyed the time because we did what you have to do if you're going to have a relationship with just just get to know each other. We didn't jump into business. I know that when we jump into business and I said to her that night, the same thing that she posted online is that, you know, we owe it to each other and to the community, most importantly, to work well together. There are things that she and I will always disagree on. But if we don't have that foundation of a relationship, ability to pick up the phone and most importantly, respect for each other, we'll get nowhere. And so that evening for me was the beginning of that. 
and really enjoyed it and look forward to more. And I'll, you know, I, it's not just Commissioner Arnold that that has sure. to be done with. On Tuesday, I'll be meeting with people at the State House. Um, we are starting to build out my calendar or a meeting with leaders regionally because we need to do it all to, to signal that I recognize that our city's success really hinges on the region's success. And it's my job to work with the structures and the leaders that have been selected by the public to move our city forward. So some of those questions, and, and they run the gamut, but there are a lot of the things that you would probably expect and some of the things that were talked about <clears throat> during the campaign. Um, but I have started to sense a want for specifics. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between campaigning and governing, right? People oh, people wanted really, specifics during the they campaign, did, right? too. I gave a, a lot of specifics. So many people were like, that's you don't have any specifics. And I'd say, here you go. <laughs> so I'm going to just I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to start a little randomly here. Sure. And and let's let's talk about the thing that I find endlessly fascinating, and that is the um, the Urban Renewal Agency oh. here. Okay. They um, are not going to have their um, election for their uh, yearly board seats on Monday. They've deferred that to February. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have any uh, of people you picked on that board, although you voted for, for many of them as, in your role as council president. Right. What do you see that relationship looking going, looking like going forward, knowing that there may be some political challenges? And what do you hope that the city and CCDC can do going forward that maybe has been different than what's been done in the past? Sure. Um, I really appreciate that the leadership of the CCDC board held off their elections and um, we're meeting with the leadership in the next week or two, I think. it's that That's being ironed out schedule-wise now. And there are positions that are open. And so I'm starting to have conversations about what the right person to be on that committee looks so, like. So just because that that is at least in my world news, are you are you looking at within the current seven there's open? Or are you looking at going back to the nine? That's what we're trying allowed? to determine whether um, is it should we go to nine that are allowed or look at the seven? There will be an opening in May. And, you know, there should there, maybe some others, maybe yeah. some others. And so it's important to me that the city and the urban renewal district work well together, that if dollars are being spent with a really good tool, one of the few tools that we have to invest in neighborhoods um, in another agency, that they be spent in a way that gives a nod to the clear message that the public sent that they want more transparency, they want accountability, they want new leadership, and that transportation and affordable housing are major issues right now. And so I look forward to sitting down with staff at the agency as well as um, commissioners and discussing how we are sure that the decisions being made over there align with the goals that we have here. And there's a lot to be determined in terms of commission makeup, next steps with that. But it's, I said along the campaign trail, and I'll say it now, urban renewal is an incredible tool that we have. It's one of the few that we have. But we have to be sure that in a changing world, when we go into changing areas, different areas than historically, we have used urban renewal here, that we think twice, three times, four times about the process that we're using to have the conversations with those neighborhoods about the potential of the tool and hear from them. And so 
that's one of the messages that I've shared with staff at CCDC as well as leadership at CCDC that I, I want us to sit down and plot how we do that differently and better moving forward. So those two urban renewal areas that have been that are under study are on the bench and along State Street and both have kind of some different goals, um, but they do move into uh, traditionally residential areas, even though they're still in commercial areas, they directly border residential areas. Do you think that that those districts should continue to move forward as currently constituted? Should during there the be camp- changes? During the campaign, I said that I I believe that it was a tool that made sense for those areas. Now that I'm in this seat, I want to look hard at what, what the lines look like, the process moving forward to collect information and be open to changing them if in the public process we actually find that you know there should be some edits. And I think that's really important that we all be willing to listen and to reset as needed to make sure that we're using the tool as strategically as possible and with as little disruption as possible. Okay, so one of the, the big projects of the last uh, four years, uh, really eight, 12 years, was uh, an idea for a downtown circulator. Uh, I think that you voted on the authorization in the affirmative when it came up in front of city council in 2017. Was that the last vote? I think yeah. the last time, yeah. yeah. Um, where does that rank as a priority for you, and do you support that that the urban rural agency is spending money on engineering still and studies for that? Project? And that's actually on the list of things to talk with the urban renewal agency about. I think that we have an incredible opportunity because it took so long to move forward on that process to look at the new ways of moving people, and we can save a lot of money and likely have the same outcome by looking at trackless trams, rubber wheels what have you, to move people. It is so important that we move people in different ways throughout our downtown. We get people out of the cars, onto the sidewalks, but make it possible for them to move further when they need to. But I don't think it requires necessarily um, the amount of money that would be invested in track. Because by the time we get to that point, with the world changing as quickly as she's changing, I would expect that there'd be a whole bunch of other technological options for us to look at. And so really want to explore those again. Do you worry about that pace of change? I was looking at the State Street Corridor yesterday and, and the information that VRT had out. And the thing they highlighted is the 2011 T-TOP, uh, which I'm not even get into that acronym, but it's a study from 2011. And I'm like, it's 2020, that's nine years old. And are we still using assumptions that are old and a growing value? How do you stay ahead of that? And we're growing so fast that these plans kind of start to date. It's really hard to stay ahead of that. I would say the fundamentals of the plans, if they were good fundamentals, don't change in the same way that like a liberal arts education will never change. Like you got the fundamentals and you can evolve with the world. So if we know that we have many, many people moving from Middleton all the way into Boise on State Street. I believe and the governor talks about this, right? Because right? he does it. Yeah. yeah. And I believe you can't like widen your way out of the problem. And so if we know that from 2011, there's so many more people, we're moving people in. They are choosing to live in different communities, need to access their jobs. That traffic flow implement um, impacts their quality of life, the businesses on State Street, what have you. Those fundamentals won't change. And so then it's on us to be thinking, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ahead of, okay, we find ourselves in a very different world than we were in 2011 in terms of what's out there as potential usage for moving people. So then what do we think that that looks like and how do we design and spend money to try to help us get there? I mean, we saw it before, right? Like a hundred years ago, who would have guessed that there'd suddenly be all these cars on the roads when there were streetcars and 
the infrastructure change quickly then. Now we're saying that we need to change that infrastructure again. And so, and the, the, the world's changing at a much faster pace. So we have to, you know, in some ways, think creatively, maybe make some mistakes in terms of expectations in the future, but do the best that we can to imagine the infrastructure that serves the fundamentals that I believe won't change. How do you work with the state leadership on that? Governor Little has kind of pried the door open. He did it with me when I talked to him last year. He did it last week with the AP to local option. And he's very careful. But I kind of, even in the state of the state, I kind of get the sense he's thinking that maybe there's a way that we can do local options statewide, raise everybody's tax and let the local municipalities dictate where those funds go. Do you have a sense that that's possible? Do you think that there's any change there for that as a fundamental or as a, as a funding mechanism? You know, for 20 years, and 16 in particular, the city attempted to get local option taxing authority. And it's something that we need in the long run to be able to fund the infrastructure that matches a growing city and valley. We have to do it in different ways. And so I do believe that there's an opening there. I'm meeting with the governor on Tuesday as a get-to-know-you meeting, not with a specific ask because it's important First, that we lay the foundation for relationships. But regionally, if regionally leaders can say, yes, this is necessary to make it possible for us to serve the public. And we also have a governor who's rightly thinking statewide about what communities statewide need. I think that we get to a point where there's an opportunity to move the needle and make some change there. So let's talk about, speaking of the governor, let's talk about property taxes. Let's talk about affordable housing. Sure. Property taxes is the thing on everybody's mind. The city of Boise gets all of the arrows, even though sometimes <coughs> it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. But you do have a, a role to play, and I asked you about this when we met um, in December, November, December. How do you see the city's role in helping the burden of an increasing property tax change as we go forward here in your administration? Sure. Well, first off, the I see my role and the city's role in relation to the public as they're experiencing the increases in property taxes and their monthly you know, rents or mortgages. It's, it's our duty to hear that, to respond to it, and to look hard at the decisions we make moving forward, to make no assumptions going into the budgeting process that it's going to be business as usual. Because we've got to understand what the property tax increases mean to people and what the choice, if we choose not to raise them in the same levels, mean to services. And to have a public conversation about that so that as a city, residents have the chance to weigh in the council and city staff are having a deep dialogue about the trade-offs before we move forward. Because, I mean, it happened in my family, right? Like, as a council member, when I looked at the last budget, you know, we knew that the difference between raising the 3% and not for every $300,000 of value was like $37. So, you know, that meant in my mind that my property taxes were going to raise, I don't know, 60 bucks, 90 bucks, just depending on the valuation. But the the reality of opening that envelope and seeing the change wasn't 90, 100 bucks. It was 30% with real implications then from my mortgage company in terms of like what I have to pay this year. And people experience that around the city. 
And we are a large number on that bill. And we could explain away that, well, the county did this and the Mosquito District did this. But the reality is they see that number. And as you mentioned, that's why we have arrows pointed at the city. So it's really important to ensure that we do everything we can to prevent property tax revolts at the state level because that hurt us so much in 2006 statewide and it hurt schools. It's my job and our city's job to take in that information from the public. We're actually looking at how we change um, community engagement opportunities for the city around the budget and then to have a very open conversation about trade-offs and what that means long-term as we move through this, the next budget process that you know will be starting in February, but finalized in August. Do you, is the city gonna continue to engage on the 2016 uh, property tax exemption that sh- sort of shifted some of the burden from commercial, or yeah, from commercial to residential? There's talk at the state house Yeah, right now. it's really important. Last year as council president with Elaine Clegg, um, she and I organized council members around the state to, sh- um, to share information with the legislature because when that shift happened, it was only really impacting Boise at the time, and now it's impacting cities around the state. And so I want to do the same with mayors in the long run is, is get to know mayors around the state so when there are very real issues like this one, and we can together talk with the legislature on it. And if people are like, what is this? I'll have a story on the site here soon that'll kind of talk about that because it's a little wonky. Great. I think it's really important for people to understand. It's super wonky, and I don't want to get lost or seem yeah. to be hiding in the wonk. No, um, I can get lost It's really in the wonk wonky, yeah. but it's it, it had real impact on each of us yeah. as renters and homeowners and now in cities throughout the state. So affordable housing, property taxes is obviously one component because your property taxes are high, but the the overall component is just the driving um, the driving force of this economy and it's growing so fast, but a lot of people are moving here and driving those values up. And a lot of things have been talked about and tried and there's a few things that are in place, but where, where do you want to put your chips going forward to really put the shoulder to the wheel on helping the affordable housing issue? Yeah. And you know, that's, it's an issue that's impacting cities around the country, as I've continued to say, but this is what gets to where I'm really optimistic that we are a smaller city and could potentially bring some solutions to scale. There are a couple things I talked about on the campaign trail that I'm really look, excited to get right into, which is I'm looking at the housing land trust study came out that made it clear that we could do something with that to create an affordable housing land trust, that incentives aren't enough, we need to do more. And I see a housing land trust as something that is key to that. We, as a city, leverage the land that we have to create spaces for affordable housing providers to build housing and create neighborhoods. That's key to me is creating neighborhoods. And so I'll have an announcement soon about some additional funds that will go into that housing land trust. The I have an affordable housing and homelessness committee as part of my transition committee, and that I will merge with the house, affordable housing task force um, as I get a report from the housing committee. And I will ask that task force to look at tools that are used other places that um, we ought to be looking at whether or not we could legally try them here. Are there creative solutions that would that would get to some of the renters' needs in this city without violating law, of course? I'm really interested in an affordable housing overlay zone that would signal to developers along transit corridors, et cetera, that the city is willing to negotiate on some things if they will include a certain percentage of units or of homes at, that are 
leased or sold at affordable rates. So there, there are things that we haven't done that we can't, can do. And I'm actually really excited to get cracking on some of those and the public will hear more about them. At some point in February, when my transition committee on housing comes back to me with some recommendations. So you've got a lot on your plate and none of it's easy. Two issues drove the election, and I haven't even talked about them, and I'm going to actually just set aside homelessness for right now. It's important, but I think it was talked about a lot. But I do want to talk about the library for a minute. Yeah. Um, the, The project is officially on pause. There's some uncertainty around what the ballot initiative uh, has an impact, but there's a pretty significant amount of dollars sitting in the city budget. And I think you've been clear, and I'm going to say it for you because I know you'll say it, that you you want to see a new main library. How do we how do we move forward? How what's the going forward plan here? Sure. So I remained clear throughout the campaign that I believe deeply in the power of libraries and the importance to have them in our communities, and that includes a downtown library. I actually believe from all of my conversations with residents that there's agreement that a downtown library is important. And so if we do that right to the right scale for Boise, we can have one that's celebrated, not controversial. So that means in my mind that we can work with and alongside the new requirements that we have that are set in code. So what do we do first? I'm not going to run out immediately and begin to work on a library because there are many conversations that have to be had. So Boise working together wants to meet and talk, and I want to talk with them about the intent and the language that they wrote and that was passed by the public. We have library stakeholders that were deeply involved in the process that, and a commission and the friends that I need to sit down with. Staff has um, made clear that there is a lot of money sitting there that was tagged for a library. And once we know and have a better sense of a timeline for where and how we might head, some of that could well be freed up. Because we need to do a library that's reflective of the community that thinks about the future, um, but that is appropriate budget-wise for the city, especially in the time that we're in. And all of those things become part of the planning that needs to move, move forward. So on a kind of interconnected issue there, the city went to the voters and asked for $17 million for, for fire stations. And the city spent through that very quickly. Yeah. And and some of that they blamed on construction costs, but there it seems like maybe with some other things at play just with time and um, how, how they were built. The general fund has helped pay for the balance, and the project still isn't done. Are you looking to continue that practice, or, or how do you want to move forward on those fire stations? Yeah, so just the other day I asked for a more in-depth briefing on the fire stations that were named as part of that bond and where we stand on them to better understand our commitments to the public because we said to the public and they approved that we would make specific changes. We have to stay true to that, but there are also needs like the Northwest fire station needs to be built. And so the fire and city staff are working on that right now for me to better understand um, what from a bond perspective we owe to the public, but then also what that means for some of these stations that need to be addressed due to growth. How do you, move forward and make policies that make folks who might be on the Vanishing Boise Facebook group feel heard and people in the development community feel heard. Yeah, I think it's 100% of the people will never be happy 100% of the time. You sound like my old boss. And <laughs> what is important in all of this is the tone that comes from this office. And it is my job 
to be comfortable with conflict and to really love trying to find opportunities for consensus and collaboration. And so Vanishing Boise, I'm sure be very unhappy with me for certain decisions. Developers will be very unhappy with me for certain decisions. But I do believe that there is an art in how we move forward as a city. And it's on me to try really hard every day to make that possible so that when Vanishing Boise is really upset about a decision that I have allowed to move forward in this building and in the community, they at least know they have their chance um, to, to be heard, seen in the process. That's really important. You can't have, and I don't intend to have, you know, a Facebook page influencing every decision or developers influencing every decision, but in any healthy, vibrant community, you have a huge array of opinions, deeply passionate people, and then it's up to leaders to create space for that democratic process to play out. So I'm going to wrap on a question that's easy. Actually, this might be the hardest question of all. My friend Lucky the DJ, who I can always count on for a good light question, wanted me to ask you where your favorite spot in town to go for breakfast is. Oh my gosh, that's not an easy question. (laughs) Then I'm going to have everybody angry at me as soon as this airs. And you have to decide if you're going to be a politician and if you're going to equivocate or not. <laughs> I, um, so I'm going to tell you the truth. My favorite place to go for breakfast is to stand right at my counter in my kitchen, have a cup of espresso, maybe nibble on something um, before I head out for a run in the foothills. Um, I eat standing up in the morning. If I am going to have a breakfast meeting, there's so many places that I've come to enjoy but, I mean, I'll be honest, my favorite place to eat if I'm going to pay for breakfast is Wild Root. They got I, – I had an office nearby, and I just got to the point where they just, like, make me two eggs <laughs> with a little s- spice on the side if I didn't get to eat before I left. Maybe they can add that to the menu now and name it in your <laughs> Lauren's honor. breakfast, yeah. the two eggs on the side. Yeah. <laughs> um, and where else? I mean, we are blessed with so many incredible coffee shops throughout the city that, you know, there are lots of, there, we aren't lacking for places where you can sneak in, have a good cup of coffee and conversation and get a little bite to eat too. Okay. I'll let you off the hook. I, I gave you an answer. <laughs> you did. I picked a restaurant. Did. Wild Root, did. did you hear that? And <laughs> I, mean, made... I mean, you've got, you've got Goldie's, which gets a lot of accolades. You've got Moon's. You've got, but, uh, yeah. I love the griddle in Southeast Boise. Certified is great. Awesome. Well, and you know, what's crazy is that I went to Elmer's this spring or summer. There was oh, some, yeah. there were, there was a fellowship program that sent Southeast Asian fellows in and I wanted to take them to breakfast because it's part of this state department group that I'm part of. And I needed to be near the campaign. I was like, let's eat at Elmer's. Oh, my gosh. The breakfast was amazing. It was so good. I really love breakfast. But often my mornings. Yeah, I like caffeine. My mornings are so often just like in the kitchen, talk to Scott and the kids, nibble on something, and then head out. And then I get here and to my other offices and I walk around with a tin of nuts because I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) So... It's like a metaphor. <laughs> Mayor Lauren McLean, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. 